You know, as a kid, I remember sitting in these hard wooden pews at my church when these big, gruff guys would carefully and delicately take these shiny sterling silver serving set up to the front of the sanctuary. It was one of those few Sundays. We only had four of them a year. It was a special time where we did something unique, something that we, we so often fail to do. And as we were doing it, you, could, you can catch the weightiness of it because these guys, they were typically like gruff farmers, right, just throwing stuff around all the time. But in this day, they looked a lot more like nervous interior decorators as they gently brought this serving set up to the front and just so placed it on the decorative table at the foot of the podium. It was a special day. It was a unique day. And I remember what it was like just wondering, why are they building this, this metallic silver tower at the front of the church? Right? I didn't know what it was. I mean, it was just like this big tower of stuff you know, that, was, that was there. And, and as the, the pastor would speak from Scripture and as he would pray, I swear the thing just kind of glowed. You know? I mean, this was, this was pretty intense. Right? After the pastor prayed, they would take the lid off of the top, and then came the little trays, right? They had guys that were just spread out across the front evenly, and they went from front to back, and they would pass these little trays down the aisle, back and forth, slowly working their way towards me. You know, it was exciting, you know. As it got closer and closer, I would jump up on this hard wooden pew, and I would clutch the pew in front of me so that I could peer over the heads of the people in front of me so I could get a look at what was in the tray, these, these tiny little square cracker-like things that were there in the tray, just so I could catch a good look of them. And, but before the lady that was in front of me had a chance to kind of turn around to see who was literally breathing down her neck, my dad would just like swipe my legs out from under me, just kind of plop me down rather firmly back on the hard wooden pew. But then finally it was our turn. It was coming down our aisle. This was exciting. I was pumped about it, you know, and I, and I got there, and, and Dad could kind of see that I was squirming in my seat antsy, and so what he would do is with one hand, he would reach around and push me to the back of the pew, and with the other hand, he would reach and grab the tray to bring it over to him. But as he did, he was also careful to hold it low so that I could see, right? I, I, could, I could see the, the bread. I could, I could, what they said was bread at least, and I could smell that smell of flour as it went across my face. It was pretty amazing. And so I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going I'm to try some of that. So as I would reach out, I would look up at my dad, you know, kind of just peering carefully, and he would just glare at me. It's like, Poof! and his stare was so firm, it like screamed no, it smacked my hand, you know, without ever touching me, smacked my hand. I just instantly went back down, right? That continued on as they distributed it through the aisles, back and forth across, all the way down, getting that, getting down to the end. And then they brought it back up to the front, and, and the pastor said some more things, and he talked about how this was bread, which really, really confused me, because when they took a bite of this thing, it was like this loud crunching sound all over the room. And I'm like, what bread crunches like that, right? After they did that, then came my favorite part. It was the heavy trays. The heavy trays were cool, not just because they were bigger, and heavier and shinier because they were, but because I knew it was in them, right? It's those tiny little cups of grape juice, 
I knew what it was, even as a little kid. I mean, I loved grape juice. I could smell the grape juice. I wanted the grape juice, right? And as, and as you know, as, as befuddling as the loud crackers were to me, like why they called it bread when they're loud little crackers, man, the, the cups were really confusing because I'm like, okay, can they not see that this is kid food? It comes in these tiny little kid cups, right? They're, they're playing with toys and they're not letting me do it. What is going on, you know? And, and I'm looking and they're passing this stuff out, going down the aisle again, and it's only the older kids and the adults that are eating the kid food. I mean, can't they see that this is kid food, right? I mean, this is not enough for them. They're going to get hungry again. Give it to the kids. It's kid food, right? And so this is all going on. In my mind, as it got closer, I didn't even bother to stand up on the pew this time because I knew what it was. But what I wanted to do this time is I wanted to position myself so that I could help carry the heavy tray. You see, I I didn't climb up over. Instead, what I would do is I'd get just outside of my dad's reach, over by my mom, right? I'd stand in front of her so that dad would think, okay, she's going to take over controlling him, right? And I don't have to reach and grab him and pull him back down. And so I positioned myself well to help with this. And as the tray was passed down, down our aisle, mom would, would hold on to it. And she would just, she'd, she'd let me hold it, right? And I would kind of, I would feel how heavy that tray was. But I had no idea the weight of what was taking place. It passed on. And, and, uh, and I would ask my mom or dad, why, why, do, why do we do this? Why, why, do you, why do you guys do this? Why can't I? do this. And they said, well, we're doing it to remember what Christ did on the cross. And I was like, I knew that. My Sunday school teacher taught me that. So why can't I eat the kid food? Right? All of this is kind of going on in my mind. And it was broken by the, the pastor coming, you know, everything kind of coming back to the front. The pastor said something about this was the blood of Christ, which again, I was like, still looks like grape juice to me. I don't know about you, but I end up watching them do that, and and my thoughts were broken by this sound of one huge culprit gulp. You know, they're all kicking it back at the same time. Boom, gulp. And then there was that clanging sound of glass against wood as they placed those tiny little glasses back in those tiny little holes in the hard wooden pews that I always played with while I was supposed to be paying attention. Right? And this happened time and time again, and I, I, I never really got why and the service was suddenly over they they took the shiny silver set away i wouldn't see that metallic tower for another three months but maybe then my parents would let me try now i wanted as a kid to participate in the lord's supper but i had no idea why for me it was the smell It was the sight, it was the potential taste, it was the touch, it was the knowing that this was a special celebration, right? When the people got serious and excited about, and I wanted to do it because everybody else was doing it, but I didn't want to do it because of Jesus. I wanted to do it for all those other things. Now I wonder if if you've ever had an experience like that. If you've grown up in church and that's kind of you, you can that 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 illustration just kind of resounds with you 
Or maybe you didn't grow up in church, but maybe you've been around a church service enough to know and kind of see the Lord's Supper take place, and you've, you've wondered to yourself, man, I, I really want to do that. You know, there's something that's very mysterious and very peculiar and, and just very confusing about the whole deal, but, but it's one of those things that, gosh, for whatever reason, I really, I really want to participate. I really want to do this thing. I don't know why. I don't know who's supposed to do it. I don't know how it's supposed to be done. I don't know why they do it. I don't know any of these things, but I want to do that. Do you guys, does that, does that resound with anybody at any point in your life? Right? But probably something that we're even far guiltier of, as far as you and me in this room, is the flippant attitude that we have regarding the Lord's Supper. We come and we do it, and it's, uh, it's careless. It's thoughtless. We do it without any consideration at all for what's going on and what needs to take place. We just do it like some kind of ritual that we observe ever so often. <clears throat> we miss the weightiness of this celebration. And so this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 26, we're going to deal with this issue. We're going to deal with the Lord's Supper. It's, it's page 851 in the Bibles and the chairs. I encourage you to turn there. But what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to institute the Lord's Supper. He's actually doing two things here. He's fulfilling the Passover, this, this ceremony to recognize something particular in the past, and he's getting ready to start. He's, he's setting course for something new, something different, something unique. Right? Last week, we saw... Um, as Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples, we saw what happened according to God's plan. This week, we're going to deal with why it happened according to God's plan. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Passover. And he institutes the Lord's Supper so that we, to help us to remember that he is our past, present, and future hope. Now I'll say that again because it's kind of long. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Passover. And he institutes the Lord's Supper to help us to remember that Jesus is our past, our present, and our future hope. So with that, let's read Mark chapter 14, verses 14, or I'm sorry, 22 through 26. Again, it's page 851 there in the Bibles. It says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And because our subtitles are not inspired, verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, in this Last Supper, Jesus shares with his disciples, he fulfills the Passover and he establishes the New Testament ordinance of the Lord's Supper, a meal that centers on three important truths, three truths that are essential for us to understand if we are to rightly participate in it. And those three truths are communion, covenant, and consummation. 
here Jesus is bringing these two events together. It's the end of one and the beginning of the next. And we need to understand how this works if we are to rightly to participate in the Lord's Supper. We must have all three of those things, communion, covenant, and consummation. Let's look first at communion. Now, when I say communion, what I don't mean is just another name for the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. You might have heard of the table being referred to as communion. But what I'm talking about is fellowship with. I'm talking about participating in, sharing in Christ. You see, what Jesus is doing here is not simply following some annual scripted ceremony to remember something that happened 1,500 years before his time that that was an historical event in the life of Israel. Jesus is doing something new. He's creating a new ceremony, one that the old one had always pointed to, but one that goes far beyond that. It allows his followers to participate in, to share in, and to be united with fellowship together in Christ through his historical death and sacrifice on the cross for their sin. Now, the old event, the one that they're celebrating, is Passover. And Passover has been fulfilled. Jesus has done that. Jesus is establishing a new ceremony, one that doesn't just look back at the past for deliverance and await this unknown future salvation, but it goes far beyond that. What he's doing is it, it rests in the salvation that he's accomplished in himself, and it looks forward to its heavenly completion. Now, this is huge, guys, because this is where we really identify with these Old Testament Israelites. Remember, I said that when they celebrated the Passover, what they would do is they would look back 1,500 years something that happened a long time ago, something defining in their history, but happened a long time ago. And they would see, oh, look what God did back then to deliver his people. And then they would remember God's promises to them, promises that awaited fulfillment, promises that they were looking forward to, promises that they had no idea how they were going to happen, this future salvation. They didn't know how it would come about. And so often what we do when we take the Lord's Supper is we look back thousands of years to something that God did a long time ago that showed that he has the power to deliver his people, but we fail to see how this is for us. And what happens is we, we sit there and we just kind of think, I wonder, how is this going to work for me? How is this going to be fulfilled? How, like, you wonder about your salvation. How is this ultimately going to take place? You're left wondering. You don't know. The Lord's Supper is different. We look back at what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Salvation is done. And we look forward to its ultimate fulfillment, its ultimate completion, the ultimate fruition, where we see Christ face to face. It is done. We need to treat it as such. This is the biggest difference, and I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make. The Passover, the old ceremony, was celebrated by Jews for over 3,000 years, from the time of Moses and this defining event in their history, freedom from slavery in Egypt up until currently, right? They have followed a very detailed script, a, very, a script that God has laid out for them to follow each year. They celebrate it in exactly the same way until Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus is the only Jew in the history to deviate from this script, 
In the Passover, what they remembered was that God delivered them from the final plague against Egypt. Do you remember what it is? It's the angel of death. You see, the angel of death passed over, and God said that it would kill all firstborn. It didn't matter who it is, animals, Egyptians, and Israelites. And the only hope they had of being saved was by placing their faith in God, sacrificing a lamb, and trusting and resting and taking shelter under this blood of the lamb. Okay, if they were to be saved, they had to have faith in the blood of the lamb. And since that time, as the angel of God passed over, the angel would see the blood and it would pass over them and not take their firstborn. That's why they call it the Passover. And last time I gave you a detailed list of just kind of what they did in the Passover. Like how this, how this script, how this liturgy was to be fulfilled. And also how Jesus began to deviate away from that script. And I said the reason why Jesus could deviate from the script is because he's the fulfillment of the script. And he can change it. The script follows four cups of blessing that were used to commemorate four particular promises that God made to Israel in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. There was rescue, freedom from slavery, God's divine power to redeem his people, and this restored and reconciled relationship to God. Those were the four promises that God made in the Passover and four promises that they saw, though it happened then, they didn't really know how it was going to happen now. And they celebrate it year after year that way. They celebrate it as families, right? Biological units, physical families. And that went unchanged until Jesus. But Jesus deviated from the script. I mean, first of all, he held the ceremony with his disciples rather than his mom and dad and brothers and sisters, right? Why would he do that? Unless there's something significant that he's taking place, unless there's something where he's saying, listen, blood is important. But it's not as important as what I'm doing here. That there's something that unites us together that is stronger than that, that is stronger than bloodlines. It is actually a spiritual family that I am creating. You are my spiritual family. You are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. Those who do the will of God, you are my family, not this biological bloodline. And so often we miss that. I mean, i got to ask you guys, are you closer to Jesus and, and your spiritual family than you are to your mom or your dad or your brothers and sisters? Or do you oftentimes trade one for the other? To be a part of the spiritual family is to have faith in Christ. Another way that Jesus deviated from the tradition of the Passover instruction was found in the dialogue, right? Jesus kind of adds his own dialogue in there as he goes. Between the second and the third cup, what they would do is they would break the unleavened bread, they would say a particular thing, and then they would, he would distribute it, and the head of the family would distribute it in silence. And then after they kind of dipped it in, um, in the, the bitter herbs, then they would uh, speak about the freedom of slavery, Now, the bread represented the bread of affliction that their fathers ate in the wilderness. The bitter herbs represented the bitterness of slavery. They had stewed fruit that that reminded them of the clay that they used, they were forced to use to make bricks. It was all meant to design, and of course the roasted lamb was meant to represent the Passover lamb. It all had this other representation that they understood. It symbolized something else. But rather than sticking to the script in, in silently eating of the bitter herbs, 
words that represented that bitterness of slavery, Jesus says to his disciples in verses 17 through 21, one of you will betray me. And they all kind of rightly ask the question, is it I? Am I the one to do it? Am I the one to betray you? Instead of distributing the bread in silence and remembering the gift of freedom from slavery, Jesus basically points them to the fact that they're still slaves to sin. Right? They're really no better off than the Israelites were. They're commemorating something that happened a long time ago, but they're still, right now, slaves of your sin. And what are you going to do about it? Celebrating this Passover, sacrificing a lamb, and has no ability to save you. You are still a slave. You still need redemption. You still need rescue. You still need freedom from slavery. You still need redemption. You still need to be restored to God. How is that going to happen? It doesn't happen by performing a ceremony, a ritual. But Jesus is not done deviating from the Passover script. Let's look at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to him. He said, take, this is my body. Now, this was not part of the Passover liturgy at all. Jesus took this bread that represented the bread of affliction that their fathers ate in the wilderness. And he gave it to them and he said, this is my body. This is my body. This represents my body. This bread of affliction is my affliction. The suffering that this bread represents is my suffering. Okay, Jesus' emphasis is not on the fact that his body was broken literally. People kind of read too much into that. Well, why? Jesus' body wasn't actually broken. No bone was broken. Well, that's not the point. Nor is his emphasis on the fact that he is truly present physically in the bread and in the cup or that he is somehow mysteriously physically present in, with, and under it. That's not the point, okay? The point is that he will endure affliction that was meant for them. And this is made even clearer in Luke 22, verse 19, where it says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This bread of affliction represents my body, which is for you. I am going to give my body for you. Okay? This is not about imbibing Jesus, but it's about what he is about to do for his followers. That's the point. And so often we miss it. And theology goes astray when we start to misunderstand the context of what's happening. His body will be afflicted for them, and they are to remember that regularly. Now, again, we forget context, and when we forget context, we go astray. That's what happens, okay? This is a Passover meal, a Passover meal that is set out, and everything is a symbol of remembrance of something else, right? The bread is the bread of affliction that my fathers ate in, in the wilderness. This is not literally their affliction that they, you know, the bread of affliction that they ate in the wilderness, right? The bitter herbs, the bitterness of slavery doesn't mean that when you eat of it, you're actually really experiencing the bitterness of slavery. I mean, we understand this, right? The roasted Passover lamb doesn't mean that we're spreading blood on our doorposts and all that kind of stuff, right? It represents something else. And we forget the fact that Jesus is at the table. He's standing there. And so none of the disciples would have thought, 
This is Jesus' body. They would have understood it. Oh, wait, Jesus is taking this Old Testament symbol, the spread of affliction, and he's now saying it's a symbol of something else. His body broken for them. His affliction. Right? They would understand the difference that was taking place there. All right? The disciples would not have held to the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, where if you say the magic words, hocus corpus meum, that the bread, which, which ironically is where we get the phrase hocus pocus from, right? <laughs> that the bread just kind of mysteriously and magically, poof, becomes the bread or, or the body and the blood of Christ. Even though it still looks like bread and wine, it's actually the body and blood of Christ. That's not, that's not it. Nor is it, nor is Jesus literally saying that this is his body as in the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation, where somehow Christ's body is physically in with and under the elements. Though there's still bread and there's still wine, you know, it's in with and under there. Somehow Jesus' physical presence is literally there. As if everything hangs on this predicate verb, which ironically was not even present in the language that Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke Aramaic. He would have said, this, my body. There is no is. And we've developed huge theological schemes off of this that have divided people throughout the centuries. All right? One of the reasons why we have a number of denominations is owing to this fact, a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. Guys, people have fought wars over this. People have died over this issue. How do we understand the is? Is Jesus really talking about his physical presence? It's a huge deal. This is weighty, right? Just in that fact, it is weighty. Is it weighty? Absolutely. Should we be concerned about right doctrine and should we stand fast to it? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we need to be careful. What makes the practice of the Lord's Supper so significant? Does Jesus body and his blood have to really be physically present for that to be significant? Do we kind of have to make this a magical, mystical, spiritual thing for this to carry any weight to it? Right? Is it not enough that, that this is a representation, that a remembrance of what Christ has done? I mean, do we really have to to bring in Christ's body somehow to make it more important? And and I have to ask the question, was the Passover trivial to Jews? Was that somehow insignificant to them? Because they they understood that everything represented something. Everything was a symbol for something. And did that make it less significant? And if it doesn't, then why do we have to try to read in Christ's presence somehow, spiritually or physically, into this for this to kind of carry some merit? Is it not enough that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. No, the focus of this passage is twofold. Jesus fulfills the Passover. He's the true Passover lamb. He's the true means of rescue. He's the true means of freedom. He's the true means of redemption by God's divine power. He's the true means of restoring us to a right and reconciled relationship to God. And second, he's clear to articulate how that is accomplished, that it happens as his body is given for you. Because that's huge. That's enough. 
We don't need to make this something magical. Rescue from yourself. Freedom from slavery to your rebellion against God. God's work to redeem, to pay the penalty that your sins deserve, and to restore you, to renew you, to reconcile you to God, that comes only through the affliction of Christ on the cross. He gave himself as a substitute. But to receive that benefit of his sacrifice, to share in, to participate, to have communion, you must be united to him. And the only way for you to do that is found right there in verse 22. He says, take, this is my body. You must take. You must receive. And what I don't mean is that you just eat the bread and you have it. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? That's not in any way what I'm referring to. What I mean is that you believe that you receive Christ into your heart, that you accept him, that you love him, that you follow him, that you want him more than anything else because you see how much you need him. That's what I mean when I say take. This doesn't happen just because you eat bread. This is not a magic ritual that imparts salvation. It's not ex opere operato, done in the doing, right? It does not impart grace or saving faith. To be united to him, it comes only through faith. You must have fellowship with Christ. It requires a relationship with him. But to take, you have to be willing to put everything else down. You need to consider the weightiness of what he's asking for here. What this doesn't mean is like, I'm going to keep all of my other junk and I'm just going to take him and add him to the pile. To take him, you must put everything down and take him. That's what's happening here. <clears throat> this is why the Lord's Supper is for those who have received Christ and those who have made their union with him public. They want to profess to the world and say, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what I identify with. I have fellowship with Christ. I am in communion with Christ. And how that happens is through baptism. Baptism is that symbol, is that public profession that we make of our faith in Christ. This is what I'm about. And I want to tell the world that, that my identity is found with them. And that's why we say that this is for baptized believers. Baptism is that declaration that I have fellowship with Christ. But friends, this communion that we have with Christ, as we have a relationship with Him, as we have placed our faith and our trust in Him, it leads to communion with others. It's never left by itself. I want to remind you of the fact that this is a communal meal. That Jesus broke the bread and He gave it to each one of them. And He says to all of them, together, take. Okay, So often when we do the Lord's Supper or, or, or anything for that matter, we think that this is just about me and Jesus. right? I'm just going to kind of close myself off to everything else that's going on around me, and this is just about me and the Lord. Well, that's never what it was intended to do. 
Fellowship with Jesus results in fellowship with others. Jesus has this communal meal with his spiritual family. Right? And to take of the communion is to take it with his spiritual family. So how do you view the table? How do you view the Lord's Supper? Do you think that all that is required for you to participate is for you to participate in this ritual and then your sins are forgiven? Right? Can I remind you of the fact that Judas did that? Judas was present, right? We know that he left before Jesus predicted that Judas would deny, or that Peter would deny him three times. That happens after this. Judas was there. He ate, he drank, he heard the warning, he went out and betrayed Jesus. So that's not it. When you come to the table, it requires repentance and faith, but it requires an acknowledgement of others around you. Are you aware of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? That this is a communion that leads to both a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship, right? We, we are with Christ, we are in communion with Him, and we are in communion with one another. Together, we remember Christ's sacrifice. So that is what is behind the Lord's Supper when I speak of communion. It is both with Christ and it is with one another. But second, it's about covenant. Verse 23 says, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. In the same fashion as the bread, Jesus again deviates from the Passover script. He takes the third cup, the third cup which is meant to represent God's divine power to redeem his people, and he says, take all of you drink of it, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Jesus is saying, my blood is the divine power to redeem God's people. What was once a reminder of God's ability to pay the penalty of his people that they deserved is now a symbol of that promise fulfilled in the blood of Christ. What redeems people from their slavery to sin, what pays the ransom that they owe to God to satisfy the wrath of God, God's power is given in the blood of Christ. It's done. And if you are not familiar, a covenant is a promise. It's a fancy way of saying a promise. You see, God made lots and lots of promises to his people throughout their history. He made a promise to Abraham, or I'm sorry, let's back up. A promise to Adam that you will gain victory over Satan, right? This ultimately will not enter your end. You know, this death will not be the end of you. You will gain victory. To Noah, that God would never curse again the ground and destroy all living creatures through a flood. He reminds him of the fact that man has dominion over the earth. To Abraham, God promised a family. He promised land. He promised a blessing. To Moses and to the Israelites, he promised rescue, redemption, and that they might be his people set apart to worship him. To David, God promised an eternal throne and a forever heir. And each one of these covenants, as you go along, were ratified with a sacrifice of animals. The blood was sprinkled in order to convey this is a, an establishment of this covenant between God and man. And in Exodus 
24, verse 8, you see Moses sprinkled the blood of oxen on the people, and he said to them, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Did you hear familiar language there? Jesus draws upon that language because he wants us to understand that these Old Testament covenants would ultimately all be fulfilled in him. If you read through the Old Testament, you recognize that none of these covenants were ultimately fulfilled. Each of them still awaits God's answer to that promise. There have been glimmers of it, but Israel failed and they fell. And in, you know, it, it really, basically, Malachi 4, you are in the exact same place as you are in Genesis 3. There is no hope. And God shows them that, listen, your worship is not going to get you there. The fact that you are a kingdom and a nation is not going to get you there. The fact that you have a king is not going to get you there. There is nothing that you can trust in outside of me that is going to get you there. And even there, they saw that it was a problem. They would fail. They did fail. And so the prophet Jeremiah spoke on behalf of God in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And he promised that God would give them a new covenant. But this one would be different because God would write the law upon their hearts, upon the hearts of his people. And when that happens, they would be his people and he would be their God and they would know him and he would forgive their iniquities and he would remember their sin no more. But the Old Testament ends with that being yet to be fulfilled. They still didn't know when this new covenant would come. Now notice in verse 23 that Jesus uses the Old Testament language, but he centers it on himself. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. His blood is the covenant. And Luke says it a bit differently. In Luke 22, verse 20, he says, the cup, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And Matthew adds in 26 verse 28 that it is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Are you starting to see the connections come together? Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise of Jeremiah. He is the new covenant and in his blood, and in his blood alone, is the forgiveness of sins. Where the other covenants failed because God made a covenant with sinful men who could not keep them, Jesus obeyed perfectly. Where worship and sacrifice and religious ritual and the blood of animals was insufficient to ratify the covenant, God gave it through the blood of Christ to ratify that. Where the old covenants required perfect obedience of wicked men, the new covenant was fulfilled was fulfilled in the perfect obedience of Christ. He worshipped God perfectly. He obeyed God perfectly. Where the old covenant was established by insufficient sacrifice of the blood of animals, again, the new covenant was confirmed in the blood of Christ. Jesus poured out his life as a ransom for many. New hearts and the forgiveness of sin are granted by the blood of Christ. He gave his life so that we who take shelter under his blood may have life. And the many are those who receive it by faith. They are heirs. They receive the benefit of his blood. And this passage clearly shows that not all are saved. Many will be saved, but not all. 
the cities, those who drink the cup of salvation, both Jew and Gentile, from every tongue and every tribe and every nation who will receive the benefits of the new covenant in his blood. This promise is sure where others have failed because God made a covenant with God. Get this, guys. This is why the new covenant is amazing. Where all the old covenants were about man and God, right? In this one, God made a covenant with God, right? God fulfilled the requirements of God, and God gave his own blood through the once-for-all payment required of God. This is what's different. This is what's unique about the new covenant. That Jesus did what we cannot. And friends, if Jesus is not the Son of God, then you are still dead in your sin. If Jesus did not live a perfect life, then you are still dead in your sin. If Jesus did not die on the cross, then you are still dead in your sin. And if Jesus has not been raised from the grave, then you are still dead in your sin. There is no option there. And if you are dead in your sin, then you are still under the eternal wrath of God. The requirement of this covenant is the same of the bread as the bread. You must take it. Matthew says, drink of it, all of you. Salvation comes as you receive the promise by faith in Jesus. And again, salvation doesn't come by right or by ritual. It's not done in the doing. You're not saved because you participate in a ceremony, but as the new covenant is written on your hearts through faith in Jesus. This is a work of God given by the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Judas ate and drank to no avail. Okay, I want to be absolutely clear on this. He was there. He heard the warning from Jesus that one of you will betray him. would be better off if you were not born. He ate. He drank. This is my body. This is my blood. Right? And he went out to betray Jesus. You're not saved because you participate in the Lord's Supper. Nor should we see a distinction between the body and the blood. Like so, so often we kind of make those as big deals. But Jesus is just using both of those as illustrations to say, I'm giving my whole self for you. I'm giving all that I am to you. We celebrate the body and the blood, the bread and the cup, because that is the illustration that Jesus used, and that's the only reason, right? There's not something significant or particular about each one. Christ drank from the cup of suffering so that we might drink of the cup of salvation by faith in him. And if you've done that, then this table is for you. And one final thing about that cup. It says that they all drank from the same cup. And that's, that's significant. They all, partake, they all partook sorry, of the one covenant together. Again, this is a corporate celebration. This is not about me drawing a circle around myself, just kind of closing my eyes and thinking it's about me and Jesus. They did it together from the same cup. We live in a culture that is engrossed in individualism. And we think that our faith is a matter of my own personal entrance to the neglect of everyone else. And I can take or leave anything that you have to say. It's about me and Jesus. And that's just not true. And so we try to symbolize that by having one cup or most times two cups that represent that. So we dip the bread in together and get a sense of that. We need that visual reminder that we are doing this together. That this is one cup that we're all sharing in. One cup of the new covenant in His blood. And as that 
blood, as that cup represents the new covenant in his blood, right? We need to be careful to think about how does my life reflect that as well? You see, the gospel call is a a call for you to, in every aspect of your life, emulate the gospel. You are to display the gospel in all things, all right? And that's not just about Connor, you doing it as an individual, and Joel, you doing it as an individual, right? And, And, you know, Judy, you doing it as an individual. This is about how do we all together do it together in order to reflect this covenant community, this covenant relationship, right? That requires community. That requires a togetherness. And if we want to be careful to display this this new covenant in the blood of Christ, the covenant that we have received from him, then we need to think carefully about how does my relationship with other people reflect that? And does it? This is best displayed through the promise and the commitment and the devotion of members of the same church. And I have to ask you, how does your life reflect this? When somebody looks at you, do they see someone who is covenanting together because of the covenant that they have received from Christ? And what I'm not talking about is the universal church. We like to go there. Oh, I'm part of the universal church, man. Like, you ain't there yet. Okay? Universal church is all believers from all time, through all walks of life, throughout all of history, gathered around the throne, singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. I'm pretty sure none of you have been there. I'm waiting to be there. But the local church always has, or the universal church always is expressed in the local church. You can't say that you have a love for the universal church and hate the local church. Okay? If you love the church, which to love Christ, you've got to love his body, right? You don't just love a head, kind of walking around mysteriously, right? You've got to have his body. Then, then you've got to love the church. And so this is a communal meal. This is a covenantal meal. If you want to display that, which if we're called to Christ, that's what you, we should want to do. That should be our goal. That should be what we're striving after. Then it requires covenanting together. So let that be a challenge to you. How are you going to do that? Membership sign-ups right over there. Just saying. So the Lord's Supper is a display of communion and covenant. And third, it awaits the hope of consummation. Now, consummation is a big, flashy, technical word that just means completeness. It means fulfillment. It means perfection. It means it's done. It's the state of being accomplished. Okay? Scripture promises that one day God will restore all things to himself. This world is heading somewhere. There is an ultimate end in which all things will come face to face with God, either to be reconciled him by the blood of Christ's cross or to face eternity under the wrath of God. It is all going that way. And for those who have fellowship with Christ, who receive the benefit of the new covenant by faith, they will be reconciled to God forever, to be with him. They will receive God's kingdom. Verse 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, this is amazing because Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection at least three times. There's been a lot of other times, but three very, very explicit times already. 
And now he's saying that, listen, I am confident that my death will not keep me from celebrating this feast with my disciples in the future kingdom of God. He guarantees it. He is assured of it. Though he knows that he will die on the cross, he knew his death and resurrection would guarantee that one day all whom he has poured his blood out for would share in the future heavenly banquet. That his death would forever reconcile them to be with God. His resurrection is a guarantee that he would truly drink it new in the kingdom of God. And this is the hope that we look forward to. This is our joy. This is our anticipation that we can share in the cup of the kingdom of God. And if you are a believer in Christ, that should be your hope. That should be something that you long for. Not that you just get a degree, not that you find a spouse, not that you get a nice house with a white picket fence, but that you will share in this heavenly cup at the, 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 the new kingdom brought forth on this earth with Christ. The marriage supper of the Lamb is your hope. That is what you should long for. There will be a day when when sin and death are fully and finally destroyed, when pain and suffering are at an end, and when you will fully and finally realize and rejoice in the Christ whose death has freed you from the consequence of hell to live forever with Him as Lord and Savior, this perfect restorer of your body and soul. And that day you will see Him and you will be like Him for you shall see Him as He is. That is a glorious day. That is a day that we should all long for. Here's how John describes it in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, that is the Passover Lamb, has come and His bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Write this. Blessed are those were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of that consummation where we together should be seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb as a bright and pure, spotless bride. That's the hope we have. That's the future consummation of all things that we will enjoy. But you know that it's not yet. We're not there yet. Jesus didn't finish the Passover festival. In his breaking from script, he ended without taking that fourth cup. That fourth cup that represents that perfectly restored, perfectly reconciled, consummated relationship between God and man. He's waiting to take that cup. He's waiting on that one. He said, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And this is just an aside, guys. One of the reasons why I have um, 
voluntarily chosen to abstain from drinking alcohol, wine in particular, it's because of this verse right here. That Jesus is awaiting the day where he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. And I want that time where I get to experience the pleasure of drinking that cup to be with him. I'm really looking forward to it. Because Jesus abstained by Christ, I am content to abstain because I know that that day is far better than anything I could have here in the meantime. And I think that that's worth waiting for. So what do we do in the meantime? The consummation is something that we should eagerly anticipate, but we're not there yet, and so what do we do? Well, I think that verse 26 has something to say to that. Again, there's not an inspired subtitle right there. I actually think that this is the end of the Passover ceremony. It says, verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Passover celebration would have ended by singing Psalm 116 through 18, and then they would have had that fourth and final cup of consummation, and then the ceremony would be done. Here we see them singing the hymn, but they don't drink the last cup. It's not yet. But Jesus ends by going to the Mount of Olives, and we know where he goes to pray. And so what do we do in the meantime? Well, I think we worship. I think that this reminds us that we are to remind one another that we are to proclaim these truths to one another, that we should sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God, that we should pray the way Jesus prayed, that we should live in community with fellow believers, that we should share in this corporate communal meal of the Lord's Supper. And in it, we look back at the covenant promise that God made for us in Christ. We celebrate the present communion that we have with him and with one another, and we look forward to the future hope of consummation in him as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, one commentator rightly said, The Lord's Supper works for good. It reminds us of who we are and what our story is, what our values are, and who claims us as his own. In the Lord's Supper, the gospel confronts all five of our physical senses. We see, we hear, we taste, we smell, and we touch what it meant for Christ to die for sin. It also binds us, past, present, and future, together that we look back at the Last Supper and we experience the beginning of that new covenant with God for us. We experience Christ's death and the power of our sins being forgiven in the present and we look forward to the future celebration of God's kingdom when all will acknowledge that Jesus is Christ and Lord. That's what the Lord's Supper represents. Communion, covenant, and consummation. And I pray that this morning that that might be yours. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for the grace that you have shown in Christ Jesus. God, we pray that you would forgive us for our flippancy and our neglect of the weightiness of what takes place here. Forgive us for trying to add to what you intended all along to be this perfect representation of all that Christ has done for us. And God, I pray that 
that we would see our need of communion. We would see our need of fellowship. We would need we would see our need to participate and share in Christ and his death and resurrection on our behalf. God, I pray that you would give us new hearts through the covenant that's in his blood and that our hope would be for eternity looking forward to that day where we would be with Christ God thank you for what Christ has accomplished God set, help us to set our eyes off of things of this world things that are fleeting things that are perishable to that which is far more weighty far more enduring far more lovely and it's in Christ's name we pray Amen.